Good morning, everyone. Um, we have a prayer request. Um, Bo's sons, Chase, Austin, and Michael, their grandfather, Spence Norwood, had a stroke and is in the ICU. Uh, and I think he's on ventilator support. Is that right? Yes, on ventilator support. And so they've asked us to remember their grandfather in our prayers today. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and as we gather together in your name, we ask that your spirit and your angels will join us, that our hearts will be in tune with you, that our, our attitudes will be of love and grace and compassion, and, and that uh, we may uh, be uh, members of your body to go out and minister uh, your healing truth to the world. We want to remember Spence Norwood uh, today, who was in the ICU. Uh, you already know his circumstance and situation, and we ask that you would look in and send your angels to his bedside, give doctors wisdom and nurses uh, wisdom that are dealing with him, and if it be your will, uh, we ask that you would restore him to health. We ask that our conversations today will enlighten our minds, that we will know you better. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 13 in our quarterly, Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions, and the lesson titled this week is entitled Partnership with Jesus. And in Sabbath's lesson... The first two paragraphs said, In recent years, research has pointed to the positive effects that religiosity, faith, spirituality, prayer, forgiveness, hope, and church attendance can have on health, including mental health. Numerous prominent scientific publications have reported a connection between religious faith and positive mental and emotional well-being. Surprise of surprises. Yet, this is not magic. The faith factor applies only to those who are deeply committed to their religious principles. Psychiatrist Montague Barker, an expert in the interface between religion and mental health, states that religion is a potent safeguard against mental illness, but only when believers possess a strong commitment to their beliefs. If not, religion may become a source of guilt and the cause of emotional, mental, and behavioral disturbances. What do you all think about that? Yes. Wendell. Does it depend upon what belief you hold? Yeah, for excellent, excellent question. See, my, that was the, the thought that came to my mind. What do you all think? He asked, does it depend on how committed you are to what belief you hold? Yes. Any examples? Satanists. People who want to kill their children because they were told by God to do so. <clears throat> People who want to kill their children are told by God to do so. Hmm. I, I, the only cases I know of that are people who are psychotic. I actually don't know of religion that promotes that. Maybe I'm other other than historic paganism did. Sure, uh, we we know of uh, was it um, Manasseh sacrificed one of his children, and Solomon sacrificed one of his children, Molech. So in the old days, yeah, that, that was. I don't know of any today. Eternally burning hell. Yeah. Does it matter if you're deeply committed to that faith? Yeah. 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 There have been individuals over centuries who have been told by their religious leaders to kill people who don't believe like they do. Ah, yes. Still happening How now. <laughs> How about Jonestown? What she says, what's happening now? What do you mean by what's happening now? Well, uh, the Muslims, the radical Muslims feel like they need to kill And I agree with you. Radical, radical Muslims. How about Christians who shoot abortion doctors? Yeah. Okay, would that fall in the same group? Do you think a radical Muslim who would blow up a building to serve their God worships a different God than the Christian who shoots an abortion doctor? Or are they worshiping the same God? Yes. And I'm sorry, we also have to remember that 500 years ago there were crusaders who went to the Holy Land to kill the infidel. That's right. So it's just not fanatical Muslims today. There were fanatical Christians back then who were told the same thing. And from Adventist, Adventist eschatology, what do we believe is going to unfold in the future? A worldwide system that's going to do what? Persecute who? Who's going to lead out in that? Will it be Christians or non-Christians? Yeah. So is it, is it just we want to point the finger at non-Christians and say this happens, or, or Christians? Yeah. Could religiosity produce a false security to allow people to avoid guilt while indulging in sin? How about if one adheres to a system that instructs to partake mass regularly, confess sins to priests, pay penance, recite, our fathers and Hail Marys, light candles, and one adheres to these rules and are committed to them, confesses sins to the priest and receives absolution. Might one avoid feeling guilt while running a crime syndicate and committing murder? Because, I mean, it's been taken care of. Absolution's been granted. 
How about if one adheres to a system that instructs to worship on the seventh day, eat certain foods, dress in a particular way, don't watch certain things, pay a regular tithe, and one is committed to this and strongly complies? Does that mean such a one is holy? No. Those kind of people crucified Christ. Isn't that true? The people who put Christ on the cross observed every one of those things. Yeah. When you don't do those things, it can't produce guilt. I mean, if that's your belief system. Is it the guilt inherent, or is the guilt in what one believes? Hmm. Can religion provide a false security in which one feels secure, avoids guilt, believes one is eternally saved, yet in which they are not? Christ said, many will come to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew seven twenty two and 23. Now, who is Jesus describing in this verse? Notice it's not the, the Muslims he's describing or the Buddhists. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. That's, that makes these Christians. So they think that they're following Christ. Yet... He says he never knew them. And so the question I have to you, how can that be? How can somebody claim the name of Christ, believe in the Bible, perform miracles in his name, drive out demons in his name, and still not be known by Christ? How can that happen? How can the Pharisees claim to know God, and when God showed up on earth, they, they murdered him? How could that happen? These are the questions. How? Because should we, should we try to learn from history so that we don't fall in the trap of being in that group that has the Bible, has the, has the inspired writings, uh, you know, studies each week, goes to church each week, but in the end, he doesn't know us. So Paul says to, in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And get this last verse here. After you did all this things, you would say, oh, that's worldly, that's wicked. Listen to what he says. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Are these irreligious people that he's describing? Now, these, are re- these are people that have religiosity. I don't know if you know, the studies show that religiosity is a predictor for child abuse. Spirituality actually predicts the opposite. When people have a spiritual internal development where they have an internal spiritual development with God, it, abuse in the home goes down. But religiosity predicts increasing abuse in the home. Does that make sense if you look at what religiosity looks like? Those who crucified Christ, would we say, were they religious people? Yes. Yes. But they have a form of godliness but deny the power. So the next question then comes, what is the power they're denying? Power to change, transform, and heal our characters. Other thoughts? Well, the Holy Spirit is supposed to take what is Christ and give it to us. But if we're not open to that... If we're busily being us, representing God, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to give us what's Christ, then we will think we're doing God's work, but we aren't doing it through God's power, the Holy Spirit. Oh, I I have to comment on what she just said here. Do you know there's an attack right now on one of the doctrines of the Adventist Church by a former evangelist who is attacking the Trinity doctrine, saying there is no such thing as as the Holy Spirit? You see, Ellen White actually says in Desire Desire of Ages that um, the Holy Spirit makes effectual in the life of the believer, what Christ achieved. And if we take away the Holy Spirit, then we don't have the effect of his victory in our life. So, yeah, I agree with you, yes. What is the power of God? So, when God transforms someone, he always does it through our cooperation and our choice because he invites us and he never forces us. So if we perceive God as someone who forces and dominates us, then we see that it's our duty to do the same thing to others. But if we see God as inviting and giving us choice and allowing us to also reject him if we choose to, then we treat others in that same way. By beholding, we become changed. The power of God is not, you've talked about this so many times, it's not force. It's not coercive power. Coercive power. Yeah, exactly. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God 
for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So we're asking, what is the power that they deny? Because by a form of godliness, but denying its power, Paul wrote that to Timothy. And then Paul writes in Romans that the power of God is the gospel. Would, do you think it's a mis, misstatement to say that they're denying the gospel? Or would that be a true statement to say? So the next question, obviously, then, is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Good news about who God is. Other thoughts? I just came from the first service over here, and I think the kids get it. The gospel was simply God um, demonstrating through Jesus Christ the character of God. Ah, through the gospel. Now, it says in one of, one of the messages that we, we, lo- we love to take as our own, the, the first angel's message, that uh, the first angel went with great power, uh, saying, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, right? Because it said something about the everlasting gospel. I can't, couldn't quite remember how it goes, but the message of the everlasting gospel, right? Isn't that the first angel's, angel's message? Yeah. The, or the eternal gospel. What do you understand that word mean to be eternal? Is it eternal only in eternity future? Or is it eternal gospel for eternity past too? Okay. Well, if it's eternal good news... Because historically, when you ask Christians, what's the gospel? Do you know what the common answer you get? Jesus died to pay for our sins. But that's not historically true through eternity past. That is true for eternity future. He's always done that. But eternity past, it wasn't true. He hadn't done it yet. But the eternal gospel is good for eternity past. So what is the eternal good news? The truth about God. Yeah. At one time in my life, I believed that it was eternal in the past just because of the promise. The promise? That he would take care of whatever happened. Well, but, and that promise, though, is only good because of the one who made the promise. So the promise is an outgrowth or reflection of his character. I understand, but there are many believe that that understanding... Well, let's, 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 let's take it, right? Let's take it. So then, then, then maybe this is it. Is the gospel good news that, or is the good news that God is, because of our sin, angry and wrathful, um, is forced by holiness and justice to use his mighty power to mete out appropriate amounts of just punishment and then kill the wicked who don't accept Jesus. But Jesus loves us, pleads his blood to the Father. Those who accept his payment have pardon uh, stamped by their name. Um, and that's the good news. Is that good news? Have you ever heard it presented that way? Or am I am I misrepresenting it? Has anyone heard it presented that way? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, Ken. On Fox News Sunday last week, they reviewed a decision confirmed by the Supreme Court that people in Topeka, Kansas, who followed their their essentially their father in picketing at funerals. Not even, not even of people who were homosexual or anything like that, are their their right to picket those funerals is upheld by the by the uh, Constitution, the Constitution, freedom of speech, and I found it absolutely appalling that the justification this woman gave for doing that was that the world must hear that God is punishing these people for their sins. That's why they're, they're dying, they're being killed, or whatever. And, I mean, it was, it was the purest representation of satanic philosophy I've ever seen on television. Well, let, let's see if we can add some inspired evidence to what you said. This is out of Desire of Ages 761. Because um, I would suggest that the good news... Uh, would it be good news that we get to spend eternity with God if God is like Satan says he is? See, the fact that Jesus died so we could have eternal life is only good news because God is not like that. If God were like that, that would not be good news at all. So here's what Ellen White says, Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God would remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. So the good news that is commonly presented is that God must punish sin. And Jesus, of course, steps in between us, pleads to his father so he won't punish us. That's the common version. 
that's where it originated. Would it be good news if that were true? This is out of Review and Herald, May 3, 1898. The more sincerely a man believes falsehood, the more fatal it is to his own soul. He earnestly advocates this falsehood, and those who have not been sanctified through the truth accept it. The more he advocates error, the more certain he becomes that it is truth. And that truth is error and must be exposed and denounced. He is imbued with a zeal that is in accordance with the zeal of his leader. A striking contrast is seen between those who practice the truth and those who have joined the ranks of the apostate. Meek and lowly will be those who follow the Lamb of God. Boastful, denunciatory, and lawless in word and deed will be those who war against the commandments of God. They are thus because they have the spirit and attributes of the dragon, who is wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. God's law is immutable and eternal, for it is the transcript of his character. By it, God designs to bring the family on earth into harmony with the family in heaven. God has made it possible for men to obey his requirements by making it possible for them to be partakers of the divine nature. Thus, our characters may be molded in accordance with the law of God. And by willing obedience to this this law, our characters are conformed to the character of God. You see, there's a real transformation work. And, and, And what happens with this other message... And this is what, this is, if you read in Revelation chapter 14, it talks about the nations being drunk on the wine of Babylon. What do you understand the wine of Babylon to be? Is it real liquid? No. What, what is it? It's ideas. It's concepts. It's, it's things that we believe that, 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 that confuse our minds and thinking. What do you think the heart of it is? Is it not some distortion about God himself? Isn't this the heart of it? Yes. What means a lot to me is when I look at people like Joseph, like Moses, like Saul, from the beginning to the end of their lives, what really meeting God and understanding God did for them, he does for us too. And they changed 180 degrees from where they started. If you look at the two antagonistic principles at war between God's government and Satan's government, God's government, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our brother. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, the principle of other-centered, self-sacrificial giving is the basis upon which God's, God's character is, and he builds his universe to run. Satan's principles are just the opposite, what we call in the world today survival of the fittest. God's kingdom, I love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to for your wealth, your health and welfare, including, if necessary, give my life that you might live. Satan's kingdom... I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to promote and protect myself, including kill you that I might live. These are the two root antagonistic principles in our hearts at war. If you look at Saul of Tarsus, you brought up Saul. Prior to his Damascus Road experience, what did his life look like? He was zealous, but he was practicing the principle that he would exploit, hurt, and even kill others to promote his own agenda. After his Damascus Road experience, he said, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. So the core principles that motivated him were changed from protecting and promoting self, to sacrificing self for others. Moses, I think you mentioned Moses. Moses, again, prior to uh, his time in the wilderness, he murdered an overseer, killing others to promote self. Afterwards, uh, we see him on the mountain, take my name out of the book, willing to give his life to protect others. We see this radical change in motivation of heart where we live differently. And you see in Revelation chapter 12, describing those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes, it says in these words, now get, get the meaning of these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. These group of people aren't concerned about protecting self, surviving anymore. These group of people don't love self so much. They're willing to give their lives for others. They've had this radical heart change where they love God and love others more than self. That is the core gospel message that we are to go to take to the world to prepare a people for Christ's coming. And it's just the opposite of that other group who have this coercive power, no one can buy or sell, lock people up in prison, and willing to kill because they don't believe the same way. It's going to be totally antagonistic in its nature. So thanks for bringing that up. In the last uh, paragraph in Sabbath's lesson, it says, prayer and Bible study, worship and the practice of forgiveness, service to others, and hope and trust in God are the sure paths to spiritual development and mental health. With Jesus as our example, we surely can't go wrong. Again, the question that was raised by Wendell earlier just struck my mind as I read that. Does it matter which Jesus is your example? 
Does everybody who worships Jesus worship the same being? Or did he, Jesus himself say false Christ and false messiahs would go out in the world? Yeah, I just want to clarify that. And that's also good when you have people tell you, I don't believe in Jesus, I've rejected him. The first question you should say is, tell me about the Jesus you don't believe in. And as they describe him, most of the time you'll be able to say, good, I don't believe in him either. And it opens up a dialogue. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. That must have been an exhausting day for Jesus. However, he did not sleep late the next morning. And it goes on to describe how he was physically tired. He went out in in, in to pray to his father to be rejuvenated. Um, What does it mean to you that Christ struggled with physical weakness, got hungry, was tired? Um, What does that mean to you? Just like us. You know, there's some versions of Christianity that teach that Christ overcame uh, and, and really wasn't subject to temptation like us because he was divine. Did you know that? I remember when I was in the military, the chaplain for our, our battalion uh, was a nice guy. I really liked him. But we had many conversations about this. He, he believed that Christ could not sin, that Christ was divine, and it, was, it wasn't possible for him to sin. Um, and he came merely to pay the penalty for our sin as the perfect sacrifice that needed to be paid. Um, but we understand that Christ suffered as a human with like passions as ours and was tempted in every way like we are. It makes a, it makes a significant difference, I think, to me to see it that way. The lesson states that prayer, and it's talking about Christ praying to the Father as in our example, that prayer is a positive factor in our mental and spiritual health. I remember in the uh, mo- most recent uh, presidential campaign, in the, in the primaries, when um, Edwards was, uh, was still in the, in the race, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the commentators was interviewing him and asked him, do you believe in the power of prayer? And Edwards, remember his wife was suffering with breast cancer at the time. Edwards says, no, but I pray for my wife every day. <laughs> now, <laughs> now the commentator didn't follow up on that at all. I thought, man, what a what a wide open door right there, man. I mean, serious. But you know, I thought if if you wanted to be a political person, you know, and answer politically, and maybe the answer would have been, do you believe in the power of prayer? I would have maybe said, well, it depends. Doesn't it depend on who you're praying to? What do you think? Does it depend on who, which God you're praying to? And, and so let's talk about prayer a little bit this morning. Well, there are plenty of people who believe that prayer is only changing you. And so it doesn't really matter if you're praying to anybody. Well, for instance, those prophets of Baal that Elijah dealt with, were they praying? <laughs> Fervent prayer. Did it matter to whom they were praying? Yes. How about somebody who does the prayer to the God that they're terrified of. God, please be merciful. Please don't be mad at me. Please don't punish me. Uh, yeah, this, this type of prayer. And you may think I'm making this up, but I have patients that come to see me, and they live in terrible fear that God's mad at them. I remember my, my one patient came to see me um, who, when I asked her in, in the initial evaluation if she believed in God, and I always ask my patients in the evaluation if they believe in God, she, uh, she flared up with anger. Don't ask me about God. I don't believe in God. Yet she had all this anger and rage toward this God she doesn't believe in. And I could tell I struck a nerve, so I started to inquire, what's going on? And at age seven, her mother was killed in an automobile accident. And, uh, and she told me that at the funeral, she was sitting on the front row, and the pastor conducting the funeral looked down at her and said, Jesus took your mommy to be with him. And she got so angry at me. She said, but I needed my mommy with me. And from that point on in her life, she had this idea in her mind that God is the kind of being who takes mommies from little girls. And so for the rest of her life, when things would go bad, her conception was God was doing this to her, that God was punishing her, that she couldn't experience any good thing because she told me if anything good happened, she just knew it was an inevitability before God would take it away. If he takes your mommy, I mean, what's more precious than that, you say? And so we had some work to do to deconstruct these ideas that she had. So she had this, this kind of, apprehensive fear constantly that tormented her. Does it matter if that's the kind of God you, you may or may not pray to? How about the perfunctory prayer? Bless mommy, bless daddy. Remember the missionaries in China? Do those prayers, you know, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. Does it matter if we pray like that? Does, does that have healing power in our lives? It might not, but God still hears it. <laughs> 
what was the one that they used to tell kids, um, now I lay me down to sleep? If, if I die before I wake? I mean, what are we trying to do to these kids? I mean, I mean, is that terrifying or what? I mean, serious. Go to bed now, but you might not be here in the morning. Sorry. We wonder where people grow up afraid of God, you know? Um, so what kind of prayer, though, is helpful for mental health? What do you think? What kind of prayer? Do we have examples from the Bible of prayer that is helpful for mental health? Yes. Just one other comment about um, prayers. You know, some religions have these prayer wheels, and as long as they're spinning, the prayer's going. And so they even add little propeller-like devices that the wind can catch so that the wheel will continue to spin even at long after you have left. Thank you for reminding that, Wendell. It's true. Actually, I, I, did, I did a blog about a year and a half ago on an article that just came out where you can actually now have a computer you can just set up the computer program. The computer program will say prayers for you all day long. Okay? So, think about that. On the positive side of things, they've done double-blind scientific studies on prayer, the effect of prayer, and found out that if people were actually praying for sick people who didn't even know they were being prayed for, they had shorter hospital stays, they had fewer complications, and did better, even if they didn't know they were being prayed for by somebody else. Yep, that, I've seen those studies, and, and, they, and they have shown those results. I, I think that's right. Um, so the question, um, what, what kind of prayer actually brings, the, brings mental and spiritual health? I mean, I think we've identified there are types of prayer that don't, but what kind of prayer does? Other-centered. Other-centered prayer. What, what, what does it say in the scripture to pray in the name? When you pray in my name, it will be done for you? You know what Ellen White says that means? To pray in the name of Jesus means much. It means that we, what? To pray in his character. To pray in his character, right. We pray with his thoughts, his motives, his attitudes. That we have his character reproduced when we, when we pray. And that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Not to have the perfunctory in Jesus' name at the end. Or sometimes we treat God like Santa or a, a vending machine. Where I put in my prayer, and so the answer better come back the way I say it should. So make this person well, and help that person, and fix this problem, and so on. Rather than praying, help me to see a situation the way you see a situation. And help me to fit in with your plan for this person's life. Instead of what I tell God to do. What about prayers like in Psalms 137? <laughs> I don't know, but David was always praying for his enemies. You know, did David ever pray that, that for the death of his enemies? Yes. And he even says, in, I think it's Psalms 137, uh, blessed is the man who smashes his enemies' babies' heads on the rocks. Now, is that a model of prayer? Well, actually, if it's in your heart, and that's what you think, and that's what you want... Then yes, you should go to God and tell him he, and have a conversation with him. And then, of course, David didn't stop there. He said, but search me and see if there's a wicked way in me and create a clean heart within me and restore your right spirit within me. I mean, if you're holding those feelings toward your neighbor and you really want to see him die, that's your true heart's wish. And you go to the Lord, please bless my neighbor. But you're wishing he dies. You see, what can the Lord, you're being deceptive. You're being dishonest. He knows your heart already. So to have the conversation with him opens your heart to him where he can maybe show you that there's some things there that need to be removed and some things to be worked out. But if you're being deceptive with him and not even being honest with him, how can he help you? So I think that, that the healthy prayer is the one where you're genuinely honest with God about what's on your heart. But then you trust him and ask him to show, but you know, I'm finite. There's things I probably don't understand. Is there a better way than the way I'm currently looking at it? Monday's lesson lists a long list of benefits from regular church attendance, and it's true that these benefits can be associated with church attendance. Several questions. Does it mean that if you experience these benefits, the long list of health benefits and things from church, church attendance, um, does it, is it true that if you experience these things, that you're necessarily attending, quote-unquote, the right church? Because you have less likely to have substance abuse, uh, more sexually responsible, less involved in risky behaviors, um, have better work ethic, and so forth. If you have these types of, of benefits from church attendance, does that mean, quote, you're in the right church? You can find that at AA. You can find that at AA, he said. Interesting. Does it mean all church attendance is equally healthy? Are there methods to determine whether a particular group is healthy or not? How about a group that doesn't focus on mining the truth from Scripture, but instead promotes emotional experiences? 
Could you uh, participate in a group like that and experience positive emotional benefit? Will that necessarily result in spiritual growth? What about a community in which hierarchy determines the thinking of the parishioners? Can one experience a sense of emotional peace and security from following the directions of the leader? There are many people I want you to know that love this. They love it. I have so many patients who are afraid to take responsibility to make choices because they fear making the wrong choice. So they love a situation, a structure, an organization where somebody else takes the responsibility and tells them what's right and wrong and what to do with their life. Then if it goes wrong, it's not their fault. They were just doing what they were told. You see, there's lots of people who love organizations like this. Does it result in the development of the image of God within? The fruits of the Spirit, the last being self-governance or self-control. The growing up to discern the ability of the right from wrong, as Paul says in Hebrews 5. It even bothers me when people say, God's in control, God's in control. Because on this earth, God allows people to have freedom of choice, and their freedom of choice interferes with our well-being or the well-being of our children. And if we blame God for everything that happened... But God was in control. I think it's a, number one, gives you a wrong concept of God, but number two, gives you a desire to blame him for anything that goes wrong in your life because God was in control, but he let it happen. And I think there's threads of theology that, that teach that idea. I know I've had some patients who've come to see me from certain Christian uh, faiths that believe that it was God's will that they be molested as a kid, that they didn't have a choice in the matter, that uh, the, and the person who did it didn't have a choice. God predetermined it all. You know, they, I've, I've had patients that have those ideas. In, in the bottom of Monday's lesson, what is your relationship with your local church body? And I asked the question, what can we do to foster a healthier relationship with our local church? I think our relationship depends strictly on ourselves. Our relationship depends on what on the choices we make. If, if there's a rift with another, either in the, in the family. Um, in the church family, in the personal family, in the home family, if there's a rift in relationship, does it always mean that you've done something wrong? I always look at the example of God and Lucifer with a major rift there, but God didn't do anything wrong. But given we're not God, and it's uh, very likely that there are things we can do better than we've done thus far. So any suggestions on how we can have a healthy relationship with our church? Dialogue. Okay, dialogue. What if your church doesn't want to engage in dialogue? Yeah, it's really enriching. If you look at Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, it says, you know, how we should handle conflict. And Matthew 5 reminds us that, hey, if we think a brother has problems with us, we really should be putting our offerings in church that day until we go talk to them. And so, you know, that should motivate the church. Hey, we're not getting offerings. Well, people aren't working through their conflict or we're giving offerings. And, and, and God can't bless those offerings if we're not working through the conflict, even if we think we're innocent. You know, we should go whether we think we're guilty and what Matthew 18 thinks is going on or Matthew 5, hey, I think I'm innocent, but my brother doesn't. So conversation, dialogue, I think that's right. How about also, of course, doing some introspection, asking if there's things that we've done to contribute to the problem, asking the Lord to see if he can direct the things we need to change in ourselves. And if there is, admitting it, acknowledging it. Being willing to accommodate the other person to whatever extent that you can morally. Now, Tuesday's lesson, which I think follows very nicely on the question that we just asked, is on forgiveness. And my question is, it's on forgiveness. What happens if a person refuses to forgive to the person who refuses to forgive? Their hearts harden. Is there a physical and mental health consequence to refusing to forgive? What happens if... um, uh, and, and you know the you know the consequence, the stress diathesis, the stress cascade. We get well, increasing risk of heart disease and physical health problems and mental health problems. All those things. Uh, is it avoidable? Can a person refuse to forgive and not be damaged by that, or is there always damage? This is one of those laws that we've talked about in here. Those testable laws that if you hold to bitterness, if you hold to grudge holding, if you hold an unforgiving attitude or heart, that you can't avoid the damage from that. Is that not true? Yeah. What if a person held out for some type of payment, appeasement, abasement on the part of the other? I'll forgive. I had a patient who sister came and got him drunk, and while he was intoxicated and passed out, she stole his coin collection that he had been collecting uh, from childhood, a rare coin collection, and because she had a drug problem. And she stole the coin collection, left state, sold the coins, and, and, uh, and got drugs with, with that. 
uh, he was extreme, and he came to see me because he was having marriage problems now. This happened about two and a half years before he came to see me. And he was bitter and angry and hostile toward his sister, so much so that he, according to his wife, was a, was an unpleasant person to be around now. He was, it was always on edge. He was angry all the time. He snapped at people, couldn't get along with anybody. And so he came to see me holding to bitterness and resentment. I talked to him about this, about the whole idea of forgiveness, about how he is being destroyed by the anger. And he said, I'll forgive her when she comes back and asks me and tells me she's sorry. If you take that position of waiting for something to be done before you forgive, can you avoid being damaged by it? What about then the idea that does God forgive outright or does God wait for an appeasement, a payment, an abasement, something to be done in order for him to forgive? Or does he forgive outright? Uh, the events of the cross, he, he asked his father to forgive them prior to obviously before they asked for forgiveness. That's Christ. Absolutely. What about the father? He is forgiveness. He is forgiven. I agree with you. And from my perspective, you know that if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. They're one and the same. Have you ever heard it presented differently? Yeah. yeah. First paragraph. The first paragraph. What's the first paragraph say? Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then he insisted that if we do not wish to forgive, God will not forgive us. This thought is terrifying. This thought is terrifying. How do you understand it? We're not ready to receive forgiveness. Yeah, I have questions about that. Do you know what it says in the Scripture, Jesus' prayer? Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay, now think that through. And we're also taught that Jesus paid the penalty of our debt. Aren't we taught that as well? There's a parable in the Scripture about the man who owed 10,000 talents and he couldn't pay it back. Let's say I, I owe $1,000 to you. I can't pay it back. And you want the money. And let's say my friend David back there steps up to the plate and pays the $1,000. He pays my debt to you. After you take the $1,000, you've received payment. Can you then turn to me and say, now that I've been paid, I forgive you your debt. Can you collect the debt and forgive the debt? No. Do you see a conflict in this idea? That's the parable in Matthew 18, where it talks about that. But didn't the fellow go and tell him, talk to him about the situation? He just didn't stay at home and say, I can't pay him, so I'm not going to talk to him about it. Yeah, the the man went to the king, and the king forgave him the debt. All right, so that person had to go, that would be like going to God and talking to the situation over. But in situations I've seen, the person who can't forgive has not accepted the forgiveness of God for something they have done. And they keep trying to make the other person forgive, and then maybe I can forgive. I, to me, it's... No, I think you're onto something there. I agree with you. I agree with you. It's God's forgiveness, even though they say they have, they haven't. So this idea that it's terrifying to think that God won't forgive us, let's see if we can uh, decompress that a little further. This is out of... Um, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 114. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow, notice, outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So biblical forgiveness is not simply this legal pardon thing. It's a regenerative, restorative, recreative process in which the law of love is written upon the heart again. It's encompassing. In our English language today, we miss this because we hear that as reconciliation. We hear forgiveness is extended by the offended, repentance is done by the offender, and when both happens, reconciliation occurs. In in this language that Ellen White's using here and the Bible used, forgiveness is the entire process is bringing us back to reconciliation and healing. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Not God's personal pardon couldn't have been extended without the shedding of blood. God was free to personally pardon. But that doesn't fix our brokenness. That doesn't restore us to him. That doesn't take away our sinfulness. That doesn't regenerate Christ's likeness within. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness because there's no regeneration of our character. And thus, Christ on the cross extends his personal pardon. Father, forgive him. 
They don't know what they're doing. And if you think that he wasn't allowed, remember the story of the paralytic let down through the roof when they broke up the roof and they let down? And he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk, okay? God has forgiven them, personally pardoned. But they remained unforgiven because their hearts were not open to receive it. They didn't get regenerated. They weren't renewed or restored. So even though God personally pardoned, they're still unforgiven because they're not renewed and reconciled. Yes? That's interesting. Hear Jesus' words. You don't know what you're doing if you don't forgive. It's even in the phrase he shared there. So if we don't forgive, obviously we haven't really accepted that gift. We're not impacted if we're just doing some mental gymnastics. It's got to impact us. Does that make sense to everybody on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it can be very confusing because of the way words change. You know, words change over time. I, uh, imagine you had a great-grandfather who was in World War I and your son today um, opened up some old letters out of the shoebox in the attic and said, uh, hey, uh, writing, home to, oh, writing over to his family, I met a guy named John and we're having a gay time over here. <laughs> Would your son maybe be confused by that? Okay, words change meaning. And, uh, and this type of thing happens, and I think um, it's important to understand that forgiveness is more than just a personal pardon. Any questions? Yes. seems like the unforgiveness or a grudge or whatever is actually being selfish. Yeah, absolutely. It's selfishness, and it's our own agenda. And so in that way, we can't reap the results because we truly are not living in love. So... Is God unforgiving toward us if we, if, if we refuse to forgive? Or is our unforgiving heart an obstacle to experiencing the healing that God's free forgiveness would bring? Yeah. Okay, Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph says, The Seventh-day Adventist outreach to the world historically has held two basic branches of ministry, teaching, preaching, and health helping. Uh, they represent the two major tasks of Jesus' ministry. Furthermore, for many people throughout the world, the Seventh-day Adventists are known for their health and humanitarian work. Should these two branches be separate or should they be integrated? Integrated. Integrated. Why? Why should they be integrated? Because we think so? Or is there a reason for it? That's the way Christ did it, she said. Other thoughts? Somebody's more concerned with their sickness, physical. So once they're healed, Christ healed before he... Preach to him. This is 8 Testimony, page 77. The medical missionary work is to be the work of the church as the right arm to the body. The third angel goes forth proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The medical missionary work is the gospel in practice. The gospel in practice. Think that through. When was the last time in the medical missionary work did someone who had been abusing themselves with alcohol and drugs and liver failure present to the ER and the doctors say, it's okay, I forgive you? The gospel in practice. This is why it's to be the medical missionary work. No, when you get bit by a rattlesnake and you end up in the ER and say, doctor, please save me. Save me. I need to be saved. What are you asking for? Forgiveness or healing? This is the gospel in practice, according to Ellen White. It says, and then this is out of Testimonies, Volume 6, page 288. Again and again, I have been instructed. Wow. I wonder who's, who do you think is instructing her? Okay. Again and again, I've been instructed that the medical missionary work is to bear the same relation to the work of the third angel's message that the arm and the hand bear to the body. Under the direction of the divine head, they are to be united, unitedly uh, in preparing the way for the coming of Christ. The right arm of the body of truth is to be constantly active, constantly at work, and God will strengthen it. But it is not to be made the body. At the same time, the body is not to say to the arm, I have no need of thee. The body has need of the arm in order to do active, aggressive work. Both have their appointed work, and each will suffer great loss if worked independently of each other. Why is the arm not to be the body? In this metaphor, let's, 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 let's break down the metaphor. The health message is the right arm to our work because, because why? Ken, go, Wendell. I think it's important to realize that the health message is not a tool. Um, as presented to me, I was told that one of my responsibilities as a physician was when someone has suffered great loss, they're more vulnerable 
to the gospel. And so I should take the opportunity to use this tool to uh, enter their life. And to me, that's abominable. Where'd you go to med school? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mm. Is that what it means to be the right arm, what he described? What he was told? That's not what it means. The right arm, the outwork, because it not only uh, opens doors as we positively promote healthful living and people see the the difference in, in lives, but models most powerfully the plan of salvation. Um, well, you have a helpless person there, sick, can't fix themselves, comes to you open-hearted saying, hopefully you can do it. And as a physician, or in my case, nurse, you're a person that stops what you would be doing for yourself and does something for them, for their well-being, to help them. It's not about you. So there's the other-centered love of service being demonstrated in it, but there's more than that. It's more, and I want you to understand this. She said it's the gospel in practice. Why? Because the practice of medicine operates upon natural law. Okay, the law of service, the law of love. A doctor cannot heal a patient in violation of the laws of health. Cannot be done. We can only heal patients in harmony with the laws upon which God built our systems to operate. So the laws are inviolate. Yeah, you cannot violate them. If you violate the laws of health, you cannot bring health. We cannot be spiritually restored in violation of God's law that he built his universe to run upon. We have to be brought back in harmony to the law. Does that make sense? Now, if you say to a patient, look, you've got COPD, I know you're having trouble breathing, but we've got to get you to quit smoking. Well, you're such a legalist, doctor. It's all about works, isn't it? You see, when we talk about people making changes in life to be in harmony with God's law, is it a legalistic process? No, it's not. And the difference, of course, between the health message, and I like, there's so many metaphors in the health message. You're dying of pneumonia, and the doctor has an antibiotic which will cure you. Did you create the antibiotic, the medicine that remedies you? No. no. Is there any work you've done to earn or achieve that remedy? No. Does the, does the remedy when it's in you do something inside you you cannot do for yourself? Yes. yes, okay. Christ is our remedy. Christ is the remedy to sin. Holy Spirit applies what Christ has achieved. We become partakers of the divine nature. He writes the law on the heart and mind. The heart becomes circumcised. There's a work that goes on inside us we cannot do for ourselves and we did not earn. This, it's a powerful illustration but does the patient who wants to get that benefit, is it enough to believe? No. You see, the patient goes to the doctor, the doctor diagnoses, I believe you're right, that's right, I've been coughing, I've got fever, I believe you've diagnosed me correctly. Uh, the doctor gives an antibiotic and explains how it works. Yep, I believe that that's, I, I understand, that's going to work. And you know what, I, I trust you, doc, I really do. I believe you and I trust you. All that's true, and they take the antibiotic home, sit on the shelf and don't take it. Does all their belief and faith do any good if they won't apply it, if they don't take it, if they don't choose it to their life. This is why Ellen White says again that everything depends on the right action of the will. will. We have to choose it for self. We have to, and our choosing is not a work that we do to create salvation. We don't. We simply choose to apply, to accept, to internalize. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no, you have no part with me. He, we don't create the remedy to sin. We can only internalize that which is freely given to us, into our hearts and minds. And then the Wednesday's lesson, last, last sentence. There's something wired in us, something not totally eradicated by 6,000 years of sin that makes us feel good, even whole, when we serve others. There's something wired in us, not completely eradicated by sin, that makes us feel good when we serve others. I thought about that, and, and I want you to think this through and come to your own conclusion on it. Is there something wired in us, or is it something else outside of us working in us that makes us feel good? when we do good to others. This is out of Signs of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, not like that word, interfered, interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on united opposition against God and the God of hosts, there is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. It's not natural. It's not wired into us. In fact, I'm going to suggest we are wired to be at war with God from birth. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds to convict, 
to draw, to put enmity, to put a desire for good that gives us that sense of joy that comes from his throne. It's not natural to us or wired into us. Do you all disagree or what do you think? So on the Thursday's lesson, we're going to close with this, Thursday's lesson. The top question, which I love this question, it says, what reasons do we have for putting our hope in the Lord? I love that. Circle the word reasons. Reasons. What reasons do we have? Are there reasons to put our hope in the Lord? Or should it just be because we were told to? So, so what are the reasons? Let's, let's throw out the, what reasons do you have to put your hope in the Lord? He's got my best interest at How do you know? Because I know him. Because he knows him. I like that. Because on the cross, instead of con- considering he was being tortured and killed, he only thought about... I mean, with a thought, he could have had all of the people destroyed, but instead he's thinking about their well-being. Forgive them. John, here's your mother. Mother, here's your son. He's busily thinking about the well-being of others while he's being killed. Okay, this is powerful, if you all think about this. On the cross, was he helpless like the two thieves? No. Remember it said in John 13, before he went to the cross, all power had been given to him, and he got up with all power and did something, went and washed his disciples' feet, and then he still has all power. So he's got all power, and what does it tell you? Because one of the allegations, you know, in, in earth we have a saying on earth, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Christ had all power. And what he showed us, this is not a declaration, it's not a proclamation, it's not a claim, it's evidence. On the cross, he could have wiped them out with a thought. But he didn't even have a thought to hurt them. It wasn't even in his, in his mind. It, didn't, it did not even enter. What does it say in the Old Testament? It's never even entered my mind to do these things. He didn't have a thought. Can you trust God with all power who would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop us? That, man, to me, why, why do I have hope? Why do I trust him? What reasons? Because he's proven himself to me. It's not a claim. And do you see why Satan hates the cross? The greatest revelation and evidence of God's character of love, the good news, the gospel, the power of, of God to salvation is, is revealed at the cross. And this is why Paul says in Thessalonians that a, a man of sin would arise and he would begin opposing everything. In other words, Christ came to do what was necessary for salvation and a counterattack came. After it was over, this man of sin would arise and he would set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Which temple do you think that was? There was this temple. He set himself up here with distorted ideas about God. This is how he reigns, through lies and misrepresentations. And so this, this, is, this is the good news. This is the evidence. This is the reasons we have. Christ came to destroy all those lies and misrepresentations so that we can actually have that confidence in God. Satan also hates the cross because it was a clear revelation of his own character. Now, thank you. It revealed and exposed him. Not only makes that beautifully stated in Desire of Ages, um, where Satan was revealed as a murderer and a fraud at the cross when he, when he murdered Christ. Yeah. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have incredible, infinite reasons to trust you and, and put our hope in you. It's not, it's not blind, Lord. It's proven. You have demonstrated yourself to us because our minds were darkened and we needed it. We ask that your Holy Spirit will take all that you've achieved and, and write it on the tablets of our hearts. Regenerate us. May we be like Moses and, and Paul who, who at one time in their life served self, but they had that radical change and they came to love you and others so much they'd give self to protect others. We want to be those people, Lord, who do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. Prepare us to be this witness for you in this, in this community and abroad. In your holy name, amen.